Acts chapter 17 and verses 10 through 15. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that you would enable it to be faithfully proclaimed and applied. And Father, that we would find comfort and hope in your scriptures. We love you and we continue to worship in our responses to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Max Lucado tells the story of Chippy the parakeet. Uh, Chippy was perched quite nicely in his cage one second, and the next second uh, he was sucked in, washed up, and uh, (laughs) blown apart almost. The problems began when Chippy's owner was trying to clean out the cage and took the end off of the vacuum cleaner hose, stuck it into the hose, and the phone rang just then, and when she reached over to get the the phone, the hose went up and down went Chippy into the vacuum cleaner. Well, she's horrified. She hangs up the phone immediately, opens up the vacuum cleaner, cuts open the bag, and Chippy's still alive, but boy, is he bedraggled and covered, almost choking with all of the dust. So she runs Chippy to the bathroom, turns on the cold water, and is trying to get all of this dust off of him about drowning the bird. And uh, she gets all the dust off, and he's just shivering, really cold. So she does what any, you know, pet-loving person would do. She gets the hairdryer out and blasts him. (laughs) And um, she reported that Chippy was all right, but he just doesn't sing anymore. (laughs) He just sits in the corner and stares, she said. Well, it's no wonder (laughs) he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. Well, that is a parable of what has happened to many people. But... We don't have to respond like Chippy did because we have got the Holy Spirit in us. He has endowed us with power. He's given us all kinds of promises. He has promised that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And yet many people feel like Chippy when their feelings are hurt or they've lost their finances or in other ways they have been sucked in, washed up, and they have been blown over. And so even the first words of this section, I think, are instructive to us. Verse 10, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Paul and Silas did not quit simply because people hated the truth. How many times have people resisted the ministry of Paul to this point? Many times. How many times has he been persecuted and run out of time, out of town? Many Uh, Paul and Silas are probably still hurting from the beating that they received three months ago in Philippi, and they've just been run out of Thessalonica. 
Uh, they've been separated from dearly loved friends. If you read through First and Second Thessalonians, it's clear that a deep bond of love had developed between Paul and that congregation, and he said it grieved him. He wasn't able to go back to Philippi. Uh, and yet he did not quit. Uh, verse 9 indicates uh, it would have impoverished uh, the church because of this big security that was put on, on them. Uh, if he had gone back, but he did not quit in this verse. He does not quit in verse 13, uh, 14, I guess it is, where he's once again run out of town. That would have been very easy to become bitter, angry, and quit, but he did not. And last week, we looked at the psychology that goes into resistance of the truth. Uh, today, I primarily want to look at the messengers of truth and the receivers of truth, when God has called you men to lovingly, graciously, gently bring the Word of God into your families, it's uh, very important that you not quit singing like a chippy. You cannot get bitter or sullen or give up. And every one of us is a messenger to some degree. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to learn, first of all, what it means to be godly messengers. Even the children, all of us, uh, to some degree, are called to be messengers of the truth. When we examine the messenger Paul, we see that he was unswerving from God's purpose. Uh, God had said his purpose for Paul was to preach to the Jews first and then also to the Greeks. And he doesn't waste any time doing that. He doesn't take a week off so he can mope and get over the pain. In verse 10 it says, When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. When they arrived. They went into the synagogue of the Jews. Even though the Jews were the ones who have caused him the most trouble, he is not swerving from God's purpose for him. And it's so easy for pastors to become cowards in the pulpit in order to spare their own hide. It's so easy for fathers to stop bringing the truth to bear in their families' lives because maybe apathy, uh, disinterest, uh, maybe resistance to the truth, or perhaps because they themselves want to be thought uh, well of. So easy for mothers uh, to not do the hard work of applying the Scriptures when they're teaching and they're mentoring uh, their children, but we need to be unswerving from God's purpose. We've all been called in one capacity or another to be messengers. And if you want the pulpit, as you guys don't, praise God, but many churches do, but if you want the pulpit to stop preaching the whole counsel of God to you, you're asking for a wimped-out pulpit that you could not respect. And so pray that as long as I have breath, I will not swerve from lovingly, graciously bringing God's Word to bear in your lives. Now, I'm going to blow it from time to time. That's why I expect you to be Bereans and check everything I say according to the Scriptures. You men are going to blow it from time to time, but you need to persevere in seeking to uh, do as fallible, weak creatures that we are what God calls us to do. Now, one phrase that Kevin Swanson has used over and over again that I think needs to be a theme in this church is that the church does not expect perfection, it expects direction. He's saying, you know, there can be people who are just an inch along the road to where they're going to be going, but if they're, if they're heading in the right direction, you know, yeah, you ought to be thrilled with that. Uh, the church is expecting direction, not perfection. And we ought to be able to put up with a lot with each other even when others are way off the mark from where we think eventually they ought to be, and maybe there's still disagreements. Some of you mothers might be able to do devotions a whole lot better than the fathers in the home can do, but you ought to be delighted when the husband is trying to do those devotions and encourage him. Don't discourage him. 
Uh, you're not expecting perfection. You're expecting direction. And so don't be feeling like you have to correct absolutely everything that's going on within the home. Be gentle on him. Now, this has to be balanced with point three under Paul. Though Paul always preached with authority, the authority of God's Word, he was never authoritarian. There's a big difference between those two words. He preached with authority. It was the authority of God's Word, but he was never authoritarian. Look at verse 11. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Now, I want you to notice that Luke praises them for not instantly believing what Paul has to say. He praises them for that. Paul didn't feel like he had to force people to believe, you know, force the truth down their throats or their, you know, his authority is being overthrown. No, he makes a distinction between the messenger and the message. The messenger is not the highest authority, and he praises the messages. He praises these people for making the message of the Scripture the highest authority in their lives. And the reason Paul's message was authoritative was because he always backed up what he said with the Scripture. The reason he was not authoritarian is he's not trying to impose his opinions. He's not the highest authority in their lives. Now, when we see fathers and pastors and other leaders getting angry and frustrated because what is wrong with you that you can't believe in trying to insist people move themselves forward, and I've been guilty of this in the past, even with my own kids, when you see that, you see a per person edging over from the authority of God's Word into power, into authoritarianism, trying to force people uh, to conform. And it's very easy for that to happen to any of us. But our only authority is the authority of God's Word. So even when people reject the message that you are presenting, when you are presenting the Word of God, it is God's authority, not your own authority that is being resisted. Okay, And so you can relax uh, in that. The resistance is to Christ, not to you, and you shouldn't take it personally. And yet this is so easy for messengers to take resistance and opposition very personally. Realizing the distinction between authority and authoritarianism can make you relax, get the message out there, and leave it up to God to be doing the changing. Uh, here's what one of the Puritans uh, said should be in the church. He said, the only voice that should be heard in the church is the voice of Christ speaking through the Scripture. So where should messengers be pointing? Not to themselves, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's constantly going back to the Word. So if somebody tells you something that you don't agree with, I encourage you not to cut off conversation, cut off relationship. Uh, don't take it personally. Uh, sure, you disagree with them. But you stand and fall before the Lord, not before them. Here's what I suggest you do. Throw the ball. They've thrown a ball at you. Throw the ball right back into their own lap by saying something like this. Oh, tell me more. I'd love to hear the scriptural basis for what you're saying there. Now, if what they're promoting is legalism, they're not going to be able to give a scriptural basis for that. And by saying, tell me more, I would love to hear the scriptural basis for that. You've accomplished two things. First of all, you've affirmed your love for that person, your connection with that person. Even though you disagree, you're affirming, yeah, I'd love to dialogue with you. I'd love to hear you on this. And secondly, 
uh, what you have done is you're teaching this messenger that if he has any basis for his opinions, he's going to be able to back them up from the Scriptures. Otherwise, he's not being a messenger like Paul was. Now, let's say that he does that and he's trying to back it up from the Scripture, but you're not convinced that he's really made a case uh, from the Scripture on that. Again, don't get frustrated and break off conversation and relationship. Remember, it's Christ's authority, not man's, that you're dealing with. So don't get upset with the messenger so much. Uh, you can either do this. You can either discuss with him some of the scriptural reasons why you disagree, or if that's not working and you're tired of dealing with this issue for the umpteenth time because they're nagging, you, you, you can say, you know, we've talked about this before, and uh, I respect your desire to be subject to the Word of God. I, too, am captive to the Word of God. But you know what? I don't think we've made any progress. We're just going to have to agree to disagree agreeably. Or you could say something like this. Well, thank you for sharing that with me. I'll prayerfully think about it. Doesn't make any sense to me right now. Doesn't make a lick of sense to me right now. But because I respect you, I'm going to think about this and prayerfully ask God if this is the case. And again, either way you do that, you've succeeded in teaching that his responsibility really is to the Word of God. Your responsibility is to the Word of God. And even though you have disagreement, you can have mutual respect. Does that make sense? Okay, it still maintains fellowship while potentially moving people away from legalism or at least judgmentalism. Now, because Paul preached the Scriptures, his message carried enormous authority, and any who resisted it were indeed resisting God. He didn't have to take it personally. You know, God backs up His authority, the authority of His Word. And so this frees up leaders to relax when they minister the Word. It's not their duty to change uh, people's hearts. It's their duty to be as faithful as they can possibly be. And when both messengers and receivers have these attitudes, uh, what happens is you can have disagreements and mutual respect. Okay, fourth point under Paul is that Paul was connected. And we'll be looking at verses 14 to 15 in a minute, but uh, they just, you know, for, for this point right here, they describe Paul's connection with Silas, Timothy, the brethren, and those who conducted him on his trip. Uh, Paul did not do this as a loner. And it's probably what kept him from being like Chippy the parakeet. Um, uh, he was connected and we need to be connected. Hebrews 4 does not call us to be the Holy Spirit in everybody else's life and to be nagging them. And I think uh, Rodney brought that up so well in the earlier uh, talk. But it does call us to be connected to each other and to encourage one another and to exhort uh, one another. You cannot read the one anothering passages in Scripture without realizing that God never desired His messengers to be lone rangers, lone criers in the wilderness. Even John the Baptist surrounded himself with a team of encouragers, emphasis on the encouragement, okay? When pastors become so isolated from their elders and from the brethren that they're just doing their own thing, they have been diverted from God's purpose for messengers. Being God's spokesman does not mean independence, arrogance, or pride. God has called us to need each other. And Paul is, a, I think, such a wonderful illustration of working with the body. Now, we can apply this in our other relationships as well. Husbands need their wives, and wives need their husbands when they're applying the Word of God in the lives of their families. But the Spirit of God also gave Paul enormous drive. Uh, verse 15 
says, So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, uh, they departed. Paul was a vision caster, but boy, was he driven. Doesn't matter how many times he's cast out, he just keeps on going. He brings God's uh, message. Now, not all of us are going to be driven to the same degree that Paul was, but all of us need to have a passion for our calling, the calling that God has put into our lives. You mothers have a unique way in which God has called you to be messengers, and it's very easy for us to lose, for you to lose that passion. Uh, Satan to divert you and get you off track of that. And uh, uh, perhaps some of you have even lost that passion already. Uh, You're so discouraged, so disillusioned, so frustrated, so weary, you know, and heavy-spirited that you've lost uh, the passion uh, that, that God has given to you. It's been displaced by other passions. You see, God probably initially gave you such a passion for motherhood. You were excited about what God... I could do in you. And uh, so don't be like Chippy. By faith, begin to sing again and ask God to make this song be more and more from your heart. Well, Paul wasn't the only messenger here. Verse 14 talks about Silas and Timothy also working with Paul and uh, continuing that work. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. Now, the persecutors right now are just after Saul. So Silas and Timothy are able to stay behind and finish what Paul was not able to do to fill in the gaps. And I think that's why they're on the team anyway. All of us have gaps. And they're filling in the gaps of what Paul was not able to accomplish. And we need Silas's and Timothy's in our congregation. Uh, We need wives who carry on the work of the husbands even when the husbands are off in the military. They're gone. We need children who carry on the work of the father in their relationships with each other. Uh, we need, uh, Rodney and I, need people who can continue uh, the work that we are not able to accomplish on our own. And so husbands, wives, and children, your ministry with each other can either fulfill or undermine the message of your Paul. We need to listen and th- think of how do we apply the Scriptures concretely into our lives, individually, as families, uh, businesses, and churches. Okay, point two, took boldness for Silas and Timothy to do this work. These Jewish opposers don't like the truth. doesn't matter what source it comes from. Uh, they don't like it. And it takes courage to continue speaking the truth when you don't have a pole to back you up. It takes courage uh, to put a wet blanket over gossip. It takes courage uh, to, 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 to reach out and uh, resist overcome heresy when you see it. And this is one of the things I appreciate in this congregation. I think this congregation really is a lot more mature in some of the things we're talking about than most congregations that I know about. But uh, to see the way you guys can fill in the gap, and Phil Kaiser doesn't have to be around for you to be able to nail heresy and to talk about it gently and graciously. And that is a good characteristic. The other thing we see about Timothy and Silas is that they were responsive team members. We've already seen in verse 15, uh, these loyal brothers were quick to stay in Berea when they're needed there. Uh, They're quick to go to Athens when Paul needs them there. They're flexible, they're responsive, they're willing to serve. They are so captured by the message of Paul that they don't have the attitude, you know, that we just want to keep that here. They're wanting to send Paul on. They're wanting to support the truth. The third group, of people who were messengers of the truth were the brethren. 
Verse 10 again, And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Um, <clears throat> and then in verse 14 you see the same thing. They immediately sent Paul and Silas away. Now, if that's the only thing that the brethren are doing with you, they're sending you away, you might get a little bit paranoid. Uh, but context is king here. The only reason they're trying to send him away is because they love Paul. They want to protect Paul. They love the truth. And rather than selfishly keeping it there and risking what might happen, they say, you know, we've got to save Paul. Let's send him off uh, uh, to the other cities. In fact, some assisted Paul by going with him. Verse 15. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So they travel all the way to Athens with him to make sure he's safe, to get him set up in his next ministry. And I think this shows such a cool heart. It shows the message of the truth was king with these brethren. They wanted the worth to triumph as far as it could go. And I really appreciate that about this congregation. It doesn't uh, just uh, try to keep the truth within these four walls. Uh, the vision of this congregation is to spread the truth, whether it's through the web or biblical blueprints or mission trips or the ministries you guys are doing. And there's a lot of ministries outside the church that are happening. Okay, we'll look at... Um, the brethren a little bit more later on, but let's look, take just a few moments for uh, talking about the opposers of the truth. Verse 13, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Now just so you can see how amazing this is, I want you to take note that Berea is about 50 miles away from Thessalonica. That's a long way to travel. That's almost the distance between Omaha and Lincoln. And they're walking this or going by, by horse back in order to oppose Paul. I mean, this, this is uh, quite amazing, the sacrifices that they are doing in order to go after Paul. Uh, one thing you can say about them, they're not indifferent. They're doing everything they can uh, to stop Paul's preaching. As Jesus said, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And so what we see here is a variety of unbelief. Not all unbelief is this way, but it's a variety of unbelief that is not satisfied with unbelief. They want everybody else to have the same unbelief. They're not content to be in their own wrong opinions. They don't feel comfortable until other people share that with them. And so the question is, why? It should seem a little bit strange to us. Why can't they just say, eh, what a bunch of nuts, you know? I don't understand why they do that. If you want to believe that, that's fine. Why don't they just leave them alone? Uh, why do we have 2,000 years of history of people undermining churches, causing division, opposing doctrine? Uh, when you read the doctrine of the Trinity and the historical debates that went on, there's some rather bizarre stuff that happened back then irrational opposition uh, to the truth. Why was there such zeal among these unbelieving Jews? It's not rational, and it's not always there among unbelievers. Uh, I think you probably know all kinds of unbelievers could care less what you believe. You know, they just leave you alone. So what's going on here? I think there's something different. Well, Paul gives a commentary on what these Thessalonians were doing in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 18, and he calls this opposition to... Uh, the, the, the doctrine of Paul, the opposition of Satan. 
The demonic was at the root of the opposition. And so that explains the irrational zeal, the irrational emotions. It explains the perseverance in their opposition to Paul. It explains the blindness to the truth. And this has been true all down through history. Churches have been torn apart by what Scripture calls a spirit of ill will that is very irrational. Friends are torn apart. Marriages are torn apart. Churches are torn apart. And when all of the dust has settled, people are disillusioned. And like Chippy, they have lost their song, their zeal, their joy, and their drive. And they wonder what's gone on. Uh, What they don't realize is their fight is not ultimately with flesh and blood. Sure, there's real flesh and blood people they're having arguments with, but they don't realize the arguments are spawned by the demonic that is behind uh, all of that. Keep in mind that if even the Apostle Peter uh, was used by Satan to tempt Christ, and he didn't even realize that Satan was prompting him to say these things, any of us can be used by Satan in the same way. So let me just list some of the demons that the Scripture speaks about uh, that affect God's people. There is the spirit of ill will in Judges 9.23 that we just mentioned. Romans 11.8 speaks of a spirit of stupor that keeps people from seeing with spiritual eyes, hearing with spiritual ears. In other words, they can go to sermon after sermon. It just falls off their back like water off a duck's back. Uh, 1 John 4, verse 6 speaks of a spirit of error that makes people comfortable with the errors, the very errors that John confronts in six of the churches in Revelation 2 through 3. Now, he tells those churches, there's so much I like about what's going on there, but because you put up with this doctrinal error or that doctrinal error, I'm going to fight against you. Now, if Satan can get God to fight against the church, he has succeeded indeed. 1 Timothy 4 speaks of deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons. Very interesting. I see, Satan knows the Word of God uh, better than most of us do. He's had 6,000 years of practice and using the Scriptures, and he knows just how to yank people's chains. Uh, There are spirits of jealousy, anger, fear, ill will, and division. And until a church is willing to take on those demons in spiritual warfare, they're fighting against the wrong enemy. As Paul later said, ultimately we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but, quote, against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now, my point in bringing this up is that some of you, I think, do not realize the extent to which the demonic has been pushing emotional buttons in your lives and getting you into conflict with one another. Wives and husbands, do not treat your spouses as the enemy when there's conflict that comes up in your marriage. See Satan as being the enemy. Go on the offensive in spiritual warfare and then do everything that you can to love your spouse and to live godly with your spouse and to minister to your spouse. When division and lack of love is displayed, don't respond in the flesh. It's so easy to take on the offenses of other people. It's so easy to respond judgmentally toward the people that we're upset that are judgmental with us. Satan's just getting us into a cycle and uh, we're not going to be helping that cycle out. Instead, go to prayer, take on these demonic forces. When somebody comes to you, 
maybe counsel them. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's some ways in which you can make sure your heart is guarded. It's not being overcome. And if need be, confront your antagonist. Uh, as um, Rodney mentioned earlier, in a spirit of gentleness and love, but always remember that person's not your enemy. The devil is your enemy. So we've looked at the messengers of truth, the opposers of truth. Let's end by looking at the receivers of truth. And we're just going to focus on verses 11 through 12. These Bereans did not yet have that demonic influence in their midst. They were not yet poisoned to Paul. They were not yet blinded to the Scripture. And as Paul spoke to them, Luke says these Bereans had seven characteristics that enabled them to be receptive to the Word. Verse 11. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Okay, the first characteristic is they were fair-minded, and the Greek word for that is interesting. It has two meanings. Paul Hill says, Eugenesteros, that originally meant high-born, but came to have a more general connotation of being open, tolerant, generous, having qualities that go with good breeding. And so my Greek dictionary says either one, pertaining to being of a high status, well-born, high-born, or two, pertaining to having the type of attitude ordinarily associated with well-bred persons, noble-minded, open-minded. Another dictionary has a willingness to learn and evaluate something fairly, willingness to learn, to be open-minded, to be noble-minded. Now, there are three things we can get from just that word there. And the first is that being open-minded and tolerant and... Uh, and uh, um, you know, fair in dealing with arguments. That is a praiseworthy virtue. And if we're not tolerant and generous with those that we uh, disagree with, we should be. We should put that on because God delights in such an attitude. So Paul was fair-minded with the Bereans. The Bereans were fair-minded with him. Secondly, unless we put on this fair-mindedness, we will not be prepared to have the other characteristics in this verse. In fact, we'll probably be subject to the manipulation of the Thessalonians. If we reason with our passions, we'll soon close off our brains. Third, because of the close connection between fair-mindedness and being noble or well-bred, we can deduce that this characteristic can be trained into our children. We need to start with our children very, very young. If we are judgmental, our kids will be judgmental to the next level. They'll pick up on that. If we are fair-minded and we insist that our children be fair-minded with those who disagree with our family... Uh, yeah, there may be the risk that our kids will start believing what somebody else uh, believes, but that's a risk I'm willing to take in order to have God's praise upon my family. He says fair-mindedness is a virtue that we've got to put on and instill into the lives of our children. Okay, the next characteristic. They received the Word. It says, in that they received the Word. It doesn't say in that they received Paul's prejudices. Paul's opinions, or even Paul's true statements, it was the Word of God that they received. Now, why is that a critical distinction to make? Well, I believe it's super critical because it's easy to dismiss the Word of God in order to defend a position or a system. And the first time that I began to realize that I was doing this uh, was when I was in my early 20s. I was going to the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland where they have exclusive psalmody, and I learned to love the psalms there. I have nothing against the psalms. I love singing the psalms. But previous to going to that church, we sang hymns, and not all hymns were theologically in agreement, with, or I was not in agreement with them, whichever way you want to look at it. 
And I would always scan ahead when I was singing to make sure I was singing truth. I didn't want to be singing something that was false. And uh, I, I think it's a good habit to get into because we, we need to worship with intelligence. We need to agree with what we're singing. But here's the sad part. I found myself doing that when I was singing the Psalms. I, I, I found myself scanning ahead and saying, okay, there is a verse I disagree with because in my dispensationalism, I thought, okay, this is, this is definitely wrong theology. And then all of a sudden, I would catch myself, whoa, this is Scripture. I can't be doing that. Uh, I'm the one who needs to change, uh, not uh, the Psalms that need to change. And during my years there, it completely cleansed me of my dispensationalism. Now, I've had people tell me point blank when I read a verse on predestination to them, I don't believe that. And I've said, no, I just read a verse. I'm not giving my opinion. Yeah, I don't think predestination's in the Bible. I said, but the word predestination's right there. Uh, in fact, I had, um, now there's different interpretations on that, but just to say blanket, I don't believe in predestination. But uh, my brother John was preaching one time. There was a lady who got all over his case because he preached about foreknowledge, that God would foreknow the future. And she said, it can't be. If God knows the future, then it's certain. And uh, she just resisted this tooth and nail. And it didn't matter how many scriptures that he brought to bear of God's omniscience, his foreknowledge, she was prejudiced against it. But you know what? We can be just as guilty. We can be just as guilty. I've seen Calvinists do this with verses that don't seem to fit into our system. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a Calvinist. I love those doctrines. These are doctrines that have absolutely transformed my life. Uh, very meaningful to me. But we must never explain away the Scripture. And I've seen people do this over and over again in Calvinistic circles where um, it's, just, it's just like, well, that, you know, they want to get rid of that Scripture. They're, they're not trying to deal with what it is that God's doing. God put those so-called tough verses for Calvinists, and I don't really think they're tough, but He put those in the Scripture for a purpose. And I think one of the purposes is to put some of the fear of God into uh, people. And so when I hear a person, uh, you know, somebody's troubled over Hebrews chapter 6, you know, talking about falling away, and he says, oh, you don't need to worry about Hebrews chapter 6. You can't lose your salvation. You've believed and, and, and you're secure. Just don't doubt your salvation. What they are doing is they are undercutting and neutralizing the purpose of this Scripture and the power of that Scripture to bring a person to repentance. And maybe that person's not a true believer in the first place. He's a professing believer. But that verse was intended to draw people. We need to allow the Scriptures to have their full force. Too many times we explain them away. Why? Because we're defending a system. We're not defending the Scripture. So, these hearers received the Word, the whole Word, nothing but the Word. And if we're to receive God's praise, we must receive God's Word too. We've got to be prepared to receive it even if it's inconvenient. Nothing should trump the Word of God. Not the pastor's beliefs. Not your beliefs. Not the Westminster Confession of Faith's beliefs. Now, you can... Honor those and respect them as reliable teachers, which you should. But as the Westminster Confession of Faith says, the Bible alone is the rule of faith. Okay, the third characteristic was that they were eager to receive the Word of God. It says they received the Word with all readiness. Now, the literal, if you just take the two parts of the Word, the literal part means... Uh, um, to rush along before. So rushing along before the Word. 
But the, the dictionary defines it as zeal, eagerness, readiness of mind. And so this is not a grudging reception of the Word. They were eager to get all of the Word that they could get from the hands of Paul. And because of that, God was pouring more and more into their lives. Jesus said, if anyone wants to do his will, there is eagerness, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. And so God gives more insight when we're eager to receive the Word, but when God sees a reluctance to receive the Word, why would He open up more to you? The fourth word is searching or researching. The text says, and searched the Scriptures. The Greek word for searched means to sift, to examine closely, to scrutinize. That's what you're supposed to do with my preaching. Okay, You're supposed to sift to examine closely, to scrutinize. And if people would do that, they would be much less likely sucked in by cults. I've told you many, many times that you, you know, if you bind your consciences wrongly, if you believe what I tell you because I have told you that. You bind your consciences wrongly. The Westminster Confession of Faith does not just oppose implicit faith in the Roman Catholic Church, it opposes all implicit faith. You're not supposed to believe something because the church tells you to do it. You're supposed to believe it because you see that the Scripture uh, tells you uh, to believe it. Now, if that's true, that means you've got to study the Scripture. You can't just leave it all up to the pastor. Paul did not replace their need to diligently search the Scriptures. He guided in them in that process of searching, but they still had to figure out, does this really make sense? Do I really buy into it? Can I understand? Does the Scripture really say what Paul is saying that it says? They had to evaluate. And if Luke praised the Bereans for doing that with Paul, you know that it is imperative and praiseworthy for you to do it with me. Now, some of you don't believe things that you have heard from the pulpit. You think there are some things that I have preached from the pulpit that are, that are wrong. I can respect that. Uh, you know, if you come to that conclusion through the study of the Scriptures. In fact, I praise you for that. I expect you to do that. I cannot respect you if you are rejecting Scripture without studying or hearing out uh, that doctrine. And more importantly, God does not respect you if you've rejected a doctrine simply because of your own prejudices. So implicit faith, even in your own system, is wrong. Whether that's Calvinistic, Arminian, cessationist, charismatic, whatever the system might be, implicit faith um, is a sin when you're putting your faith in a person or in a system rather than the Scripture. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.12. He warned the Corinthians, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas. He was a Posing incipient denominationalism, as it were, uh, that was going on back then. And he tells them in chapter 3, verse 22, that they can learn from all of them and they need to learn from all of them. All are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. I have learned so much by listening to brothers who are outside of our confessional communion. Now, that does not mean that I in any way despise the Westminster Confession of Faith. In fact, it's made me realize the genius of the Westminster Confession of Faith, that it is probably the closest. It approximates the liberties that Paul gave to the Bereans the best. But verse 11 goes on to say that this searching of the Scripture is not a once-a-year issue, you know, any time a controversy comes up. It says they searched the Scriptures daily. 
And I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to be daily in the Word of God, making it your true guide for life. Uh, Joshua 1 says that we've got to meditate on the Word day and night. And uh, Psalm 1 says the same thing. There are other Scriptures indicate every day we need to be in the Word of God. Moses said, Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe. All the words of this law, for it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life. If it is your life, it needs to be daily just like food is daily. The next phrase says, To find out whether these things were so. They wanted to know the truth, not soothing words. Truth, not fun words. Truth, not what reinforces what I already believe or what I want to believe. And so they gave Paul the benefit of the doubt, but they didn't believe it until they could see it in the Bible. And our church wants to give you that same liberty. It's a liberty to come to your own conclusions. It's a liberty to take the time needed to be convinced or not convinced. It's a liberty to not have your conscience bound by the confession, the pastor, the elders, or John Calvin. But give the teaching the benefit of the doubt. Be willing to examine it. The last characteristic of these Bereans was that they were believers of the truth. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. There are some chauvinists who think that wives need to have implicit faith in their husbands. But this doesn't talk about implicit faith in their husbands. They came to believe the Word for what the Word itself had to say. Faith is what we are called to. And if we're not constantly living by faith, we can be so easily subject to the Thessalonian opposition to the truth. Now, let me just give you a postscript. I think it's an interesting one. If you were to travel to Berea today, you would find the church in Berea persecuting the Christians in the same way that the Jews in this chapter, we're persecuting the Christians. See, the Greek Orthodox Church has fallen so low that in its dead theology and its uh, dead ritual, it is severely persecuting the true church. Now, the true church has woken up there. God's Spirit has broken into the city of Berea. There's a growing body of vital Christians there, but they have to meet in secret uh, to avoid opposition. They're alive. They're coming to Christ. They're hungry once again for the truth. But I bring that up to point out nothing in life is static. Nothing in life is static. Any individual, any church, any group of people can eventually become instruments of Satan to oppose the truth. And so we've got to make sure we are still being salty, that we are new wineskins into which God's wine of grace can be poured. And so to summarize, this passage calls us to be Godly messengers of truth, godly receivers of truth, and not to be discouraged by the opposers of the truth. Only God can change people's hearts, and we can total confidence He knows when, where, and how to make those changes. And so when the wind is taken out of your sails, refuse to be like Chippy the parakeet. Sing the song of grace that God has given, and rejoice that if God is for you, no one can successfully be against you. Be like this small group of leaders and believers in Berea. Amen. Thank you, Father, for your word, the challenge of it. Help us to be receivers of this, uh, your word, to stand under its authority, to wield its authority, and to uh, delegate and uh, help others 
to stand in the same authority. We love You, Father, and it is our blessing, it is our great privilege to be men, women, and children of the Word. In Christ's name, Amen.